Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. back we're here it's february and since we last spoke the two of you were together i want to hear how it went i saw some pictures i've heard some buzz uh you know on mixed the, reviews on the channel yeah, disastrous disastrous was, <laughs> what happened did the, the, the ground open up well, what, tell us about it sarah sarah let's hear from you first what's your perspective on rj's situation it, first, it's a wonderful church. It's wonderful people. I was a little terrified because it is, I know everybody says West Palm Beach on Palm Beach, but it's still Palm Beach. And I was like, well, what am I walking into? The loveliest people. Um, yeah. And so vulnerable, willing to be vulnerable and wise women. Like I just loved it. I really did. And so I did, I preached on Sunday morning and then I did a women's retreat on Monday morning. And it was so, um, first of all, just good for me because I haven't really done that since my parents died. And I actually didn't know if I was capable of it. When RJ asked, I thought, well, if this goes really poorly, he still has to deal with me um, (laughs) slash love me. So that's fine. So I'll, you know, and then I'll cancel everything else. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, but it went, it went really well. And, um, I just loved, I mean, the thing I I love the most RJ was, um, being with all those women. And Mm. I loved that we didn't tape it because people asked about that and it really allows people to talk more freely and, and just watching them when they were in table discussions, just like leaned in, listening, laughing, weeping, it was just beautiful. It was such a gift to me. So, yeah. RJ, what's your perspective getting to share Sarah with with your with your people? It was amazing. I mean, she was uh, her sermon was incredible and such a huge uh, just a gift to to mm-hmm. everyone there. And her teaching was amazing. Um, my own little Thanks. title for her teaching was um, Popeyes and Chardonnay. Uh, t- Which David he- was there for that meal, so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah. he uh, she uh, talked about um, Dolly Parton a lot, and yeah. she talked about you know death and mourning and being an integrated human being, um, and it was just uh, it was it was lovely. I mean, I, I just came from um, one of my women's Bible studies that I lead, and at the end, a number of people said, "RJ, we just have to say again." how amazing Sarah was, oh, how what a gift so she was and how wonderful it was to have her. And I said, well, she'll be back. I think this will be an annual, an annual thing at least, you know, hopefully if we can, uh, if Sarah doesn't get too busy here. No, but, um, I mean, I think it's that thing also, and RJ and I talked about this of like, you know, I, I have done this. I used to do this a lot more and there are churches you show up at and you're like, well, that was fun, you know? And there was something about this church and those people that I was like, Oh, we're we're all ready to do this at the same time. Does that make mm. sense? And that was yeah. so beautiful. Like I just felt very at home there. So, yeah. Well, the the sermon was recorded, and we put it on the uh, mocking pulpit feed. And I've been hearing about it. I haven't listened to it Aww. yet myself, just because of other things. But I will. And um, I I knew it was going to be great. But Sarah, what's do do you think these people actually like 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 RJ or do they tolerate him? I mean, what's <laughs> How do we? Do they have a sense of humor about it? It's him? only been four years. There's they, time to blow it. Do they realize oh, the extent of the the you know the character that they've got on their hands? What's your sense of that? They're so funny. They adore him and love him, and he loves them really well. And I got to meet DJ, his assistant, who was awesome and so helpful and so dear. And it just the whole service was be- the music was beautiful. I mean, I I really I enjoyed worship. Um, in a way that is rare when you're up there in front of everyone. So that was awesome. And I got cornered this week by someone telling me how good of a preacher RJ is. And I just thought to myself, you know, how's, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how good of a preacher he is. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Dave. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was just, I was absolutely agreeing in every respect. But yeah, things are, things are good. And I cannot, I'm, I'm can't wait to, um, 
yeah, be with you guys at uh, the Mockingbird Conference. That's going to be that's going to be super fun. It's going to be a really good time. We are into the you know, registration is open for that at all the it, early bird is over, and we've already got it's like almost half full. Um, and that's we we rarely Whoa. even open it up this early. So, wow, I do hope say uh, people should. Uh, should register. Don't sleep on the Mockingbird NYC conference, April 25th through 27th. You can find that on our website. Um, well, guys, do you want to know what, how I'm doing? I mean, is that yeah. no, I mean, no. you got a haircut. Let's just, let's it just looks move nice. It. Oh, you did get a haircut. Look at You're you. Grayer. Salt and pepperier okay. than ever. Yeah. Salt so and pepper. What always, else is going on? Always grayer. <laughs> well, I've got to go to the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, My, right. Yeah. That was so cool. Kate and I went um, at the invitation of the Windrider Institute which is um, sort of like a, a faith and film uh, organization. They're part of Sundance, actually, sort of officially now. But you, cool. they curate a morning program, and you meet all these interesting filmmakers. And I got to meet RJ. I got to meet the guy who directed Won't You Be My Neighbor? Oh, uh, Morgan oh my Neville. Gosh. And Morgan Neville, as you guys probably recall, he also directed The Saint of Second Chances. And so I'm realizing who he is and I'm sitting there wearing my St. Paul's Saints cap. And um, so I got to go talk to him and it turns out he's just finished a new documentary about Steve Martin, uh, oh, the comedian. And he's, born in Waco, Texas. He's Shout now out to Aaron Zerman. <laughs> working on the one about Paul McCartney in the 70s. So it's just like a... That's awesome. And he, he did the David Chang Ugly Delicious show. I mean, he's just a delightful awesome. human being. And then we saw some great movies. In fact, we saw one movie. This is the other highlight. I walk into the first screening that I'm going to. It's this documentary I've heard a lot about. It's called Daughters. And it's about a daddy-daughter dance in prison. Whoa. You know, with 15 girls and their dads. Mm. And you follow their dads through the sort of a therapy program. And they're all sort of violent offenders and... Um, but their their they, their daughters are dying to have this daddy daughter dance with them, and it's mm. it's it's just as emotional and powerful as you might imagine. But one of the executive producers on it was Jessica Seinfeld. So <gasps> I walk in, and Jerry Seinfeld is right there, and he sits down about eight feet away from me, the row behind me. And you know he's notoriously standoffish. He doesn't want, to, <laughs> as you might imagine, he doesn't want to be approached. But uh, I was in his presence, and I just I've, I've come back a different person, not just with That's a haircut. That's amazing. This is That's this is amazing. Dave. No, no hugging, no learning. <laughs> <laughs> so it was no a real, no real gift. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you to Windrider and to Bruce and Bonnie Shaw for uh, helping make that happen. What an incredible experience! That's awesome. Speaking of movies, you know what will have come out by the time this podcast comes out. You guys don't know, but mm-hmm. season four of The Chosen will be is in movie theaters um, starting february 1st movie theaters. so i know sarah's all caught up on the chosen she's like, watched she's, have, have you watched any, any of, of it any of no it? but i have i am getting through the bear and i think they're very similar <laughs> <laughs> i'm watching true detective and i really am it's right there with you the, 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 it's the same thing is it good okay? is the new season good of true detective of true detective I mean, it's fun watching Jodie Foster. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's very much in It's process. no Fargo. Oh it's my no God. Fargo. Y'all. We're going to talk oh about God. Fargo. Good I, Lord. That's coming at the end of this episode. Okay, okay sorry. Not okay, talk about it. Oh. Yes. That is one of these Saint of Second Chances type recommendations. The, the yeah. holdovers is it's Fargo season five. Must watch. It's um, crazy. So I would say that this was a great memory for us, uh, the Sundance thing, and it leads right into the first article this week, which is by Catherine Jezer Morton for Brooding, which is part of uh, New York Magazine and The Cut. She writes a wonderful, like, I kind of think like one of the best parenting newsletters out there. And this mm. is her called, Why Are Parents Fixated on Core Memories? Oh, she says that they she watched says, Inside Out. Exactly, which is amazing. That's, mm-hmm. but also that's all the therapy they've done. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Dave, sorry, <laughs> no comment. Uh, she says, when I was six, we took Amtrak from Montreal to New Orleans. I adored this trip, and it made a big impression on me. So much so that I urged my boyfriend to move there with me uh, at, when we were twenty-one. Uh, But I only actually remember two things from traveling to New Orleans as a kid. The pink translucent apple jelly that our hotel served at breakfast and an Amtrak porter handing me an Andy's mint and smiling. All my other memories are incited by photographs. You might call the jelly and the mint my quote unquote core memories from the trip. 
These memories have come back to me lately as I've watched a trend on parenting TikTok and Instagram in which parents claim to be quote unquote making core memories for their kids. These captions typically accompany vacation or holiday content, sort of the announcement that we're going to Disney, or pictures and videos of kids playing in nature, like in a very beautiful spot in a waterfall. The core memories narrative is a roundabout way for parents to congratulate themselves for giving their children happy childhoods. Now it gets, uh, she, she ups the volume. Today's parents are famous for their instincts to control and engineer outcomes for their children, but it's supremely hubristic to assume that you can stage manage the content of your children's memories. Child psychologists are constantly reminding us that the world of kids is and should be separate from the world of adults. What's important to them is not what's important to us. Presuming to know what experiences will be most formative for your children and then taking the next step and boasting about that presumption to everyone you know is a new level of buy-in to the charade of happy family cosplay on social media. She's got away with a phrase. The concept of our core memories came to pop cultural prominence because of the 2015 Pixar movie Inside Out. On social media, though, it seems to be used as a hybrid with the biological concept of imprinting, which describes how early and frequent exposure to certain experiences can teach children behaviors that can last a lifetime. A core memory of a fun trip to Disney, so the reasoning goes, could make for lifelong happiness. Core memory talk feels like a further embrace among online parents of an approach to family life storytelling that is breathlessly, almost passive-aggressively corny. She backs up here. She says, parents just want to make sure their kids are happy, and they're desperate to feel a sense of reassurance that, yes, they're doing a good job. I suspect that core memory content is a form of self-soothing. But I do wonder if the urge to rapidly protect our children from sadness is costing them something. This maniacal focus on creating and documenting happy childhood memories, this insistent packaging of it, feels like the anxious smoothing down of a whole dimension of life. Sure, we should protect our children from suffering, but we should also protect their right to suffer. Whoop. Thought this might strike a chord with you guys. I, I have seen this a little bit, not not that much, but um, she, she links in the newsletter to several examples of it. She talks elsewhere that this is sort of an example of parents almost mining their children for authentic emotions because they can't have them themselves anymore. Um, I mean, parents of a, of a, of a very online uh, variety. But anything strike... I, I, I do, by the way, have very... The core memories I have, some of them are about, of ice skating, but... And, and beautiful, you know, experiences. But I totally agree with what she says. Some of it is like the way that one hallway at church smelled, you know, like that's, right. that's right. a core memory somehow. And no one meant for that to be a core memory. It's not bad or worse. It's just, that's what's lodged in the brain. But what do you guys think about this? I mean, I think this core memory stuff is bullshit. It drives me crazy. I have friends who I love in my life who say, oh, that's a core memory. That's a core memory. I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't know what they're going to remember. Do you remember? Do you know what I remembered from like road trips when I was a kid? And we we took road trips. We drove to New Mexico. My mother was hashing out her Latino heritage, okay? And all I remember were Butterfingers and Sunkiss because that's what I got every time we stopped at the gas station. What's and it wrong was with awesome. that? That's exactly. a great memory. I don't know where we went. I don't know what we did. And, you know, I think about our own children. And the thing with kids is... First of all, you cannot stop them from suffering. And suffering is a birthright. But you can't stop them from suffering. But that's all they remember. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't keep them from falling. You can't keep them from, you know, not getting to do the thing that they wanted to do because you don't have enough time or whatever. And they're going to remember that. Like, I'm, you know, I mean, my kids are like an auto recall for all the times I said no. (laughs) um, Or times they got hurt. Or times I yelled at them. I mean, that's their core memories, you know, and I just, I mean, I'm kind of being, I'm kind of being a little facetious about it, but I I think about like, we took two really big trips after Harvey because we, you know, went through all that and the church paid and sent us somewhere, which was so nice. And the diocese gave us a grant and we went somewhere, which was so nice. We did California, we did um, the Pacific Northwest and we did Canada Zero memories. Do you know what they remember? They remember that when we were in Canada and Josh and I were trying to get everything together in this cheap motel we were staying at, 
that I finally found some weird French Canadian cartoons on Canadian public television. (laughs) And they were like, this is awesome. That's what they remember if you ask them from those trips. And I I also, RJ, I'm going to let you talk in a second, but this, this really does, I don't like any of this. It also is saying that those aren't valid, beautiful memories for children to have. And that's awful to me. Like, we don't get to decide their narrative. I mean, it, it, it reminds me and has echoes a little bit of, and I'm never sure if I really agree with this, but when people talk about the 1950s, oh, nobody shared their feelings and their parents didn't listen and blah, 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 blah. This feel this echoes that to me of like, we don't have bad feelings. We don't suffer. We don't have bad experiences. We only have waterfalls. I mm. don't know. Mm. Do you think I'm being too harsh? I th- I think that there's you're Always. saying a lot of what she's I, saying actually. So that's that's why I read the article. Yeah. But but RJ, what are you what do you think? Yeah, because y'all go cool places, RJ. Come on, talk about your core memories. Uh, I agree with a lot of what she said and what you said in terms of if you're trying to curate your child's memory, like yeah. give me a, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and you can't save them from suffering. You can't make them happy all the time. I totally agree with that. Um, I do also though think, you know, there have been times when Jamie and I have been like, should we do this thing with our kids? Uh, does it make sense? Can we set aside the time? Can we afford it? You know, yeah. usually oh, totally. if, it's, if it's clearly something we can't afford, it's not even on the table. Right. You know, but usually our response to that has been like, hey, we only have them at home for like 18 years and sure. then they're going to go to college and then they're going to go away. The money we have, we have now to spend with them during the time that we have them. And if we have a little bit of debt, we got to pay off it later. Like, so be it. You know, like, like it's for now. And and we have talked with them at times about, you know, uh, what some of their fondest memories from their childhoods were and, and without trying to lead them. And they actually do really remember our road trips really fondly. We did the mm-hmm. same thing when we lived in Texas. We do like mm-hmm. these three week road trips up through Colorado and Utah, yep. New Mexico, you know, Montana. Yeah. And, um, they have really fond memories of those times, you know? So... I don't know. I think so. Your kids again, are smarter than mine, is what you're telling me. Well, I wonder how how old were your kids? I <laughs> no, wonder if my kids were a little kidding. bit older. Maybe no, they were older. Our kids were younger, and yeah. I, I I think that's also an issue with this. Is I will see people write about core memories, and they're holding a two year old, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's no, that's yeah. that's that's ridiculous. No, there's there is a, a di- dictatorial impulse here. I think that it can't allow experiences to happen without archiving them or wanting to um, preserve them somehow. I think I think some of this is fueled by people having painful memories, you know, and wanting to spare their totally. kids that. And I totally understand that. I just think it presumes, as so much does, that we have more control than we do. And uh, what ends up making a memory and what ends up being unmemorable are just, there's, there's so many other things that beyond like our intentions that go into that. So I love how she sympathizes with parents who just want their kids to be happy. They want them to give them a a foundation of kind of nice things to recall. And yet it's out of sync. And when it becomes, certainly when it becomes performative, and yes. it becomes like uh, like this content. I use this for my own parental brand. Like that gets pretty dark and pretty. I was talking to um, uh, Will McDavid, who used to work for Mockingbird, a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine and, and just individual. And he he really misses it. He's been working in a in a law firm, and I. But he was telling me that the only thing that he didn't miss was when you're writing about uh, spiritual things. Every sort of God experience, every kind of uh, grace moment becomes fodder for content, you know, mm. and in a way that feels instrumentalized. And it, it, it mm. it's the only, he's like, it's the only drawback. I, I miss it yeah. so much. It's such a better job than I ever thought I, I, I knew at the time. But and that happens with our parenting too, I think. Like um, we had snow here the other day and, and everything got canceled for just forever. But, yeah, you know, this. I didn't really get any great sledding pictures and and or videos, and I thought, gosh, I, I really blew it. You know, I'm gonna. But I think we had a lot more fun. <laughs> I wasn't like fumbling with a camera and saying, "Wait, wait, don't go yet. Uh, stop, stop. Wait, wait, hold on. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, now go and now have fun. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's that yeah. Uh, that thing. So it's very Black Mirror to me, like that show that you know. 
it reminds me of that episode where people have things implanted in their brains and so they can play back, right? What oh, yeah. happened. And it just kills everything, right? It just does utterly does people in, but it's this sort of control over what's happening in our brains and what's happening in the brains of our children. That is, um, I just find it very disturbing. I don't, I don't see a redemptive thing about this, but go ahead, RJ, maybe you do. Counterpoint. Uh, yeah. one of Marshall's absolute favorite things to do is watch videos of himself with his brothers when he was a baby, you know, oh, that's really sweet. He just let his, his brothers are gone. They're yeah. in college and he misses yeah. them and he's homesick today and he has spent a good portion of the morning watching videos from his, from when he was a baby, Aww. things he can't remember. And, and he looks at pictures of trips that we took either when he was a baby or before he yeah. was alive. And he's like, I want to go there. When can I, when Aww. can I go there? That's really um, and, and I don't think it's, I don't think it comes, I don't think it comes from a dark place. <laughs> you know, probably I've met Marshall um, recently and I don't think it does either. <laughs> I, know. I mean, to me, the message is like, do fun stuff with your kids because you love them. Yeah. But don't think that you can save them from pain or that you should save them from pain yeah. and let them decide for themselves because they're going to anyway <laughs> what they remember and what they don't. But also like, I don't, I like, I like, we have pictures in our hallway of like special family moments, you know, and sure. there's something nice about that. The irony here is that the whole point of the movie Inside Out is not to shut oh, yeah, sadness that, of out of yes. the equation. And s yeah. having sad core memories is part of what makes a person whole. Remember? Yes. Like that's, yes. what's so, that's yes. one of the things that's so of powerful. Course. Joy wants that's to why you manage cry. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the reason I have such a visceral reaction to this, not I, I mean, I don't want to apologize for it because I'm not in the mood, but... <laughs> Um, is because my, my kids, probably some of their biggest core memories are finding out my parents died and sitting yeah. on the couch in our living room yeah. and being in, I mean, literally like it was like hearing animals cry, mm. it, the noises they made and mm. the noises we made. And so I'm just like, yeah, I have a really hard time when people are like making core memories. Cause I know what some of their biggest core memories are and I can't change that. Yeah. So once again, so, though, the whole question is really has a lot more to do with the parents than it has to do with the children. Yeah. Um, yeah. As most of our parenting is always a mirror, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, listeners of the podcast will know that I, I've actually tried to steer clear of talking too much about internet culture in the last, mm -hmm. I don't know, six months of this. But um, this recent one was too, I mean, I know we just did, uh, but this recent one was just too uh, ripe not to talk about. This is actually from back in, I think, April, but it was picked up this week by Russell Moore at Christianity Today. But it's a, a book that came out called The Age of Guilt, The Superego in the Online World. And uh, I'm going to read from a review of a book by Mark Edmondson. The review is written by a guy named Michael Roth, who's the president of Wesleyan University. And it's, What Would Freud Say About Our Online Behavior? Okay, this is what Roth writes about Edmondson's book. It's not news that we live in a moralistic, judgmental age. The left accuses the right of this. The right accuses the left of this. Everyone agrees that we live in a judgmental age. In The Age of Guilt, Mark Edmondson turns to the psychoanalytic concept of the superego to understand why so many are obsessed with judging themselves and others. Human beings, the theory goes, are fundamentally divided, according to Freud. We are ambivalent creatures who want things we are afraid to want. Freud introduced the idea of the superego in the 1920s to describe how one part of our personality judges other parts. The superego is an internalized authority that at once holds us to a standard we are incapable of meeting and punishes us for our deficiencies. When we torture ourselves with self-recrimination or simply feel guilty for not living up to our aspirations, it's the superego at work. The online world offers a way to displace this work by satisfying the desire for judgment with social media outrage. So instead of punishing oneself, one can share one's judgments online and be liked for having high or at least crowd-approved standards. The internet, Edmondson writes, is the great enforcer of superego socialization. Today, there are so many opportunities to get away from nasty self-judgment by judging others. Reminds me of stuff you've said before, Sarah. To escape our own feelings of guilt, we attack others, or we douse ourselves with what Freud called palliative measures, just to feel less. 
canceling strangers in highly performative ways, for example. We show ourselves not to be so bad. Edmondson writes, when you deploy the superego in the world, you gain some temporary relief. You judge and you judge, and for a while it seems that your sins have been forgiven. Instead of trying to erase internal tension through violence or submission, Roth writes, we should learn to accept that we are imperfect creatures whose needs cannot be fully satisfied. Quoting Edmondson, it is a blessing to the self to think of ourselves as always and forever unfinished. We'll never coincide with the glowing superego-approved image in our mind. Edmondson seems to believe that by making his readers and his students aware of how we get in our own way, we will change our ways. I, I kind of agree with a lot of what he's saying. I think that the superego is oftentimes in sync with what we would call the voice of the little L law, just the, the mm. constant condemnation and the you are not enough, you are less than uh, th- that voice of accusation that rings out in the culture and, of course, in our own heads and drives us to displace our feelings of guilt and shame onto the people around us. So I, th- I think it's a novel way to to think about, I guess, why the internet is especially has become so so intolerable. And this this actually syncs with something Sarah wrote about this week that we'll talk about at the end. But before we go further, super ego, ego, id, Freud, online stuff, what do you think? I mean, I've, I'm always, it's I say this all the time, but one of my favorite things about the work that we get to do at Mockingbird is when sort of the therapeutic, psychological world crosses over with the gospel, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think this all seems in some ways really obvious, right? As Christians, like, especially because we live in a time where the message people are getting spiritually is you can do what you want. You don't have to feel bad about it, you know, be free. And there's nothing to call back to you, Hmm. right? And that freedom, there's nowhere to put the guilt that you feel when you do what you want, <laughs> right? And so it doesn't actually work. But I mean, the internet is a nice place to try to try it out. Uh, it just it just doesn't work. It builds more and more and more on itself. I mean, I from personal experience, I know I used to be a lot more bombastic on the internet, and you know, time, age, suffering has had me stop that. But I kind of, I could tell you that like, I would be more like that if I was feeling sort of maybe more stressed in my personal life or more stressed in my professional life. It became this place where you could sort of reign over your darkness Mm. and condemn others. So you didn't have to be condemned yourself. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that, I think that's all really true. I think it's also why people need Jesus, frankly. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, yeah, RJ, what 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 does this bring up for you? I'll be honest, I, I have a tough time relating to it a little bit because I don't, I think, hang out in the parts of the internet where this is going on. Like, mm. I'll see, you know, things on Facebook where people are posting a meme that's critical of someone else or making fun mm-hmm. of someone else or, you know, and I'll just kind of scroll past it or if it's just too much or too angry, sometimes I'll just like snooze them or defriend them or something and just be like, I don't really need this in my life. Um, you know, the one time in my life when I got really, um, angry online was, I think I've shared before after Sandy Hook, you know? Oh yeah, Um, sure. And I just discovered that it did absolutely no good at all. And actually, you know, really alienated me for a time from people that I really care about and love who just happen to have a different opinion about that particular issue than I do. So I was like, okay, I'm done using the internet as a way to change anyone's mind about right. anything. Like maybe I'll try to put something out about how great Jesus is or something, but I'm trying, trying not to be so angry. I, I guess I, to the degree that I experience people's anger or hot takes or criticism or whatever, it probably is more in the context of conversation. You know, I live in an area where a, people like to talk about politics a lot and they like to share their opinions. And I think oftentimes they think that I agree with them because I go out of my way to not share my own political opinions about anything. Sure. And I think the way that I've responded I'm sort of more recently to that is just giving myself the freedom to not need to have an opinion about things that don't actually matter that much, you know, and not to say they don't matter 
in the global sense. But I don't really have much power or control over them. And what matters to me much more is like loving the people that God has put in front of me, you know, and they, I may agree with some of the things they think, and I may disagree with some of the things they think, and I may think that some of the things they think or they express are really terrible, but I don't, you know, I don't feel the need to have an opinion about it anymore. And it does feel like our, we're living in this world where you have to have, we have to take sides. You have to have an opinion, you know, and, but that's a, like, no, you don't. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have an opinion about anything. You can just nod your head and smile and be like, okay. Well, everyone knows that when, when you're in an interpersonal relationship and you just need to share something, you're not actually looking for words from another person. You're, you kind of need to be listened to. You, you, silence is experienced as grace. It's not absence. It's not the same thing as absence, but I think silence, it, it, it applies more widely than just politics. I think in general, to insert one's opinion or assert about about a problem is usually to judge it and to and that's how it's received. You know, that's what the constant thing you, you hear men always being told is stop trying to fix every problem, you know. Just listen. And uh, listening, I think, is experiences grace and in a, in a way that is countercultural right now when we're told that, no, you need to actually not just say something, you have to say it really loudly and over and over again, or else it doesn't kind of count. The reason I went to this is because Russell Moore wrote this wonderful column in Christianity Day called Grace in an Age of Guilt. And he just, he said this, which is very similar to sort of some of the stuff we talked about, and I talked about in Seculosity. He said, for so long, so many have assumed that sin and guilt are outdated categories suited for a medieval era, but not for this one. The prophets and apostles, though, told us that sin and guilt, along with the search for a meaning in life, the fear of death, and an answer to shame, might be culturally amplified realities, but they are not culturally created. Guilt and shame are fallen human conditions, not ancient or pre-modern or modern or post-modern ones. The question is not whether the world around is grappling with guilty consciences, but how. I think that's pr very profound. I think that either you, you grapple with a guilty conscience by trying to, uh, you know, it's kind of fight, flight, or appeasement time. It's yeah. how we deal with the law. You know, we, we lower the bar, or we try to reach the bar, or we try to uh, argue with the bar. But um, the other answer is, is, is to sort of look to, to God's grace and to, you know, he would say this is a vast and beautiful the persistence of guilt in the modern age is a is is a major um i don't know argument for turning to god turning to jesus i mean it yeah it's it it's just i mean in in like really basic theological terms right it's just the difference between self-justification and justification through the person of jesus christ and it is exhaustive. I mean, RJ's so sweet. You know, he's like a third grader. He's like, I'm not on those parts of the internet. I just silence those people. Meanwhile, my trashy ass is like <laughs> sitting on the toilet looking at like like commentary under sister wives videos from TLC. You know? Like I'm up in it, okay? Duh. I wanna know. I wanna I wanna know what's going on in their life and then I wanna know what the what the people Which, Sarah, have I need to, to say, say that part of your personality was such a ministry to my wife. She just loved hanging out with you. you know? I loved hanging out with her too. <laughs> the permission. So it's not but silence. Like, it's, the, it's the permission to, to be who you are. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's real, right? Like that's, that's uh, part. Sometimes that is part of the world I exist in. And I think like, I see a lot of those spaces on social media and I can so relate to the vitriol. I can so, because I, I, I can access anger clearly so easily. And I also know how, I don't want to be so simple about it, but bad that is for me mm. and exhaustive and self justifying and in denial of the truth. And the truth is that, you know, I find my rest in Jesus and I find my rest in giving up on justifying anything about myself, <laughs> you know. This is a little self-justifying, but uh, it, 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 but the, the quote came to mind as I was thinking about, um, you know, permission to, to be silent, to say yeah. nothing at a time yeah. when, you know, silence is violence and, you know, silence oh is, 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 uh, people are like, we gotta run. 
Um, yeah, yeah okay, complicity or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what did, remember what Farrah Capen said? He said um, that God's answer to the sin of the world is not to shout, stop that, mm. but to shut up once for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, that God, since the is silent uh, when it comes to our, our sin, right? <laughs> Except just to love us. So maybe it's, uh, th- th- that feels like a very dangerous thing to say in the current context, but um, yeah. Yeah, but what else is, I mean, we're going to get to, Sarah has more thoughts on this, but before we get to those thoughts about the sort of escalation of like what what you demand in, in these situations, right. um, there's a fantastic newsletter that we highlighted in another weekend. Callie uh, Yee highlighted it. It's by it's a, from a news newsletter by Mary Harrington, and uh, the title was "You Need to Be Cringe Maxing." Cringe maxing. Mm. Uh, I wonder, she said, if we underrate the contribution made to habits of loneliness by the pursuit of cool. She puts cool in quotes. Of course, I'm middle-aged and therefore, by definition, not cool. And there's probably a new word for cool now anyway that's cooler than cool. But anyone younger than 75 or so will surely know what that word denotes. The indefinable, elusive, exclusive aura that marks an idea, look, behavior, or social group out as aspirational. Cool, though, is structurally antisocial. Something stops being cool when everyone starts doing it or wearing it or whatever. That means as long as you operate under the sign of cool, you can't build anything lasting or broad-based because the moment you do, it stops being cool and the glamour migrates somewhere else. Ordering your social life around cool requires a certain ruthlessness, a willingness to move on the moment something or someone no longer has that magic fairy dust. If you aspire to build lasting friendships, cross-generational loyalties, and thick social bonds of the kind able to sustain meaningful family life, then cool is your enemy. Cool enjoins you never, ever let on that you need other people. There's nothing less cool than needing. Mm. The absolute opposite of cool is not uncool, but cringe. The wincing, jaw-clenching feeling you get when you do or witness something that you know the cool people would regard not just as uncool, but actively anti-cool. Embarrassing, awkward, social kryptonite. And probably the most cringe thing you can do is going to church. Nice. (laughs) She takes a turn. There, you show up regularly to join a group of others you didn't choose, and some of whom are probably old or weird or awkward or otherwise uncool. The purpose of showing up is prayer. Again, the opposite of cool, because to pray is to declare openly that you are not completely self-contained. There is no way in the world to make going to church cool, and the most cringe thing of all is trying. Here's the thing, though. Data consistently show that the happiest people, those who fill their lives are most filled with purpose and fulfillment, are those who go to church. Those, in other words, who are not just to be indifferent to cool, but actively anti-cool. The first step to a happy and fulfilled life, it appears, is cringe-maxing. She gets, she builds to a climax here. She says, I am convinced that whatever your relationship to religious worship, a central reason why religious attendance is associated with happiness is that in order to make that commitment, you need already to have abandoned the pursuit of cool. When you abandon an anti-loyalty, anti-dependence, anti-friendship social edict that privileges the judgmental gaze of the other over an honest assessment of their own needs, the result seems to be a nicer life. A culture that valorizes cool sets us up to fail as social beings and then sells us myriad forms of self-care to make up the shortfall. Against Mm. this, you need to be cringe-maxing. You need to be seeing old-school friends. You need to be helping out at scouts. You need to be praying with old ladies, babysitting people's kids, picking up litter, and wearing the jumper your nan knitted. It feels weird to begin with, but it's worth it. Love it. I mean, <laughs> she will this on... person come speak at our next conference? Because Seriously, that was so good. Yes. That was so good. I thought you guys would appreciate. I obviously thought I of our RJ as being that. particularly uncool, but th- you know, we all. Thanks, Dave. Well, <laughs> stop ragging on you. Um, my son's would agree with you. Yeah, I know. My son would yeah. certainly agree. I was like, I was like, if you've got a kid in your house, they're going to tell you how uncool you are. <laughs> yeah. I know. Cringe maxing is just basically what it means to be 13, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So do you think I, I, the line where she says trying to make going to church cool is the 
is impossible and it's it, because it's, it because the only less cool thing than going to church is trying to make it cool there's the trying the try hards you well, know let's say that those who have really tried it it seems to not end well for them i'm just gonna say that right yeah uh, what are you talking I'll about i'll say more i'll say more <laughs> what, um, what on earth are you saying i mean one thing i noticed i was just like we we you know we're on summer vacation we will drop in if there's a big you know hit non-denominational secretly Southern Baptist church, we will drop in, just see what they're doing, you know? And what always strikes me is there's no children. Always strikes me. There's no children. They will have a way for like, if there's like a few kids, they will put them somewhere and you will not see them the entire service. Huh? Um, but there are no children in those services. And I have actually known people who have attended those churches. And then when they've had kids, they found they go a, more, else. Right. a more cringy church. Yep. Yeah. To go to that has a, you know, a really wide range of ages and people you'll go to those churches and you'll, you, you'll, you might see some like middle-aged, you know, hip cats in there, but you also won't see 83 year old women. That's the other thing. And it's interesting. It's like the people who we culturally define as like the most cringe, the least cool, which are like three-year-olds and 83-year-olds, you know, they're not in those churches. They're not in those spaces. So, I, I mean, I, I would, I would, I, I, that's the only point of argument. I was gonna say people do have quote unquote cool churches, but there's, um, there's, it, they're pretty clear about who's allowed in there mm. and who's not. Um, implicitly if not explicitly yeah she talks elsewhere about if if to be cool is to be non-needy you know if neediness is the opposite of cool oh yeah well then babies are the opposite of cool that's what she says that elsewhere she's like they're they're just they're just need so there's nothing cool about who's the most needy right yeah exactly we've yet to the process of growing up in many ways is a a process of figuring out how to hide our neediness or to do sort of detach from it or uh, distance ourselves from it yeah Um, rj what what else are you thinking here have you guys seen the reviews for this new book called get the picture about Mm -mm. the art world Mm -mm. um there's an article in the washington post about it um a journalist went undercover in the art world and just uncovered how completely ridiculous it is but it is a world that is obsessed with being cool obsessed uh, like yeah. she she tells a story of one lady who's a receptionist at a very high-end gallery in new york city whose boss makes her pr- uh, practice over and over again how to answer the phone to uh to to elicit a- as little need as possible like as wow. much aloofness as possible or even uh, tell stories of young artists who get worried um, because their work is getting too popular and might get sold to the wrong person who's not cool. And if you really want to make it in the world, you got to make sure that not just do you sell your work, but you got to sell it to the right person. Yeah. So you'll actually refuse to sell it to someone who's not Yikes. cool. It's just a hundred percent about being like as cool That's as so possible. Interesting. Oh, and by the way, everyone who's successful is a trust fund baby and doesn't need the money. Right. You know, right. Partly right. they didn't, need, they didn't <laughs> have any need. The people could smell that they right. didn't actually need it. And that's why right. they're cool. Yeah. And, that's and that's why, why they're, they're in cool. the art world. So and miserable, just, uh, but cool. Yeah. Totally yeah. miserable. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. very, very cool. And the opposite wow. of church. So what? it just made me think about that. I think that any environment where people can, are somehow given permission to be needy, you know, that's what, that's what the buzzword yes. vulnerability means, you know, it's any, yeah. any, and that, I think church is one of those places. I mean, I think there's plenty of churches as well, where you are, the better Christian you are, the less needy you will become, you know, like it's, there, oh, there are yeah. ways in which, yeah. in, the, in way this, the church polices against ne- yeah. neediness. Um, it may not be in the name of cool. It may be in the name of sort of righteousness. Totally. But there is something I do find at a church that's where I feel like I can sense the grace of God is almost always a church where some of that posturing of non-neediness of self-containment is, is over. And, you know, um, and, you know, maybe, maybe the process of aging again, the, one of the reasons why people return to church when they get older is they get more in touch with their physical need. You know, they can no longer do the things you can do when you're, when you're 22. I don't know. I, I do know that like, um, I have, a, I've always had a love hate relationship with cool just as a, someone who 
loves music. And I felt like I could see that about you. The, the, the great moment of, I guess, freedom for me. And it's, um, has always been, you know, I, I've been listening to Barry Manilow this week, you know, that's not cool. Or maybe it's so uncool. It is cool. I don't know, but I'll just tell you, you have, you you have to be freed from all of that stuff in order to discover what you actually enjoy. And I feel like the gospel is, is in large part, freedom, freedom from you having to use music or movies as identity markers and to go to, to, to enjoy the, the popcorn movie just as much as the art movie or to say that art movie was super boring. Like, you know, that those people are just sending subtle signals about how non needy they are. You know, it's like I've, have felt, I guess, a certain amount of serenity and growing maturity is is really is not like kind of becoming a better person, but becoming a little more comfortable with liking the things you like and not caring how it makes you yeah. look or, or or being okay with your own neediness. It's I don't know if you can really do it through effort, but I know that it does happen, and I'm grateful for it. There's two things that just strike me about this. The first is I was not raised by cool people. Um, and I remember being in high school and saying something to my dad and I was basically said to him, like, I wish you guys were cooler. And he goes, Oh, sweetie, we weren't trying to raise you to fit in. (laughs) And I was like, well, I wish you had, you know, (laughs) I want to be a cheerleader and join a sorority. Um, I want different core members. That's what homeschooling parents always say to their kids. Right. We'd like that you're awkward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, what a gift retrospectively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but think of this beautiful image that popped up yesterday from our church here because they did a, uh, they took the youth group curling, Mm. which is arguably the least cool sport. And they took a picture of the group and (laughs) our son who desperately needs a haircut and also bleached his hair for his 13th birthday. So he, Josh calls him Rod Stewart. I mean, he looks wild and he is like laid across the group, like Burt Reynolds, you know, with this funny look on his face and he looks so happy and no one looks cool. And like, I, I, you know, those, those spaces in church are really important for us, but you know, and I've heard RJ talk about this. Dave, I've heard you talk about this too. Just the the fun of those spaces for our yeah, kids. We talked about last episode, the ministry yeah, of fun. To, yeah. to not have to be cool at youth group mm-hmm. is huge. I mean, that's the one space. If you're in middle school, that's the one space that, and maybe your house where you don't have to feel cool. So Man, curling, that's a, Brilliant move. I, whoever curling. thought of that, I didn't know there was curling in Nashville. I got to say, I didn't see that. Didn't see that. Well, Nashville's cool. Nashville is very I didn't cool. See it I mean, it's well. not. They're not growing up in a non-cool place, or that's not. That's true. Not a, that's my my true. brother took me in to play shuffleboard in Brooklyn one time, Ooh. which sounds not cool, but it was actually very cool. Well, I gotta that's say, awesome. so, so the Sundance Film Festival is extremely cool. <laughs> extremely like, cool. Look at us out here doing cool stuff. Um, okay. But yeah, and then I'm in the church choir, and RJ is a priest, and I mean I am too, but you know, right now I'm basically just in the church choir, and RJ is a priest, and you know, Dave sits around with figurines behind him that he orders from trash yes, kids or whatever. So, like, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. Well, let's um, move on to something a little serious. We'll close with this. But there, Sarah, you wrote something um, of of real, um, I would call it real traction and power mm-hmm. uh, called "Revenge Vampires." And it's on Mockingbird. And you, you as, um, I'm going to put some words in your mouth, but it, it sounds to me like uh, snow came to Oxford, Mississippi, and uh, the Pleasantville attitude kind of got stripped back. And you, you watched on Facebook. Josh was like, couldn't you have just other. said a small southern town? Why did you have to say Oxford? I was like, well, you know, if you're going to go down burning, at least play a song. So, but what you, so people started to judge the daylights out of each other uh, about. Yeah how they were acting around like you can't go out can't stay in all that sort of stuff right is that basically Mm -hmm. what happened Mm -hmm. yep and you're watching how things degenerated very quickly online into the sort of super ego type world in which we that uh Edmondson describes, but then you mention another act of violence that had surfaced in your news feed this week that you could not look away from Kenneth Smith was the first person in the country to be executed with nitrogen gas. This method was supposed to be more efficient and painless, but based on eyewitness accounts, it sounds appalling. Smith struggled for several moments of shaking and writhing before dying. 
In fact, it sounded so horrid, Sarah, you write, that I voiced to my husband that maybe there's an old way the government did this that would work better. But every suggestion I made to him was met with a reason it will not work. It was bleak, to say the least. How about a firing squad? Josh responded, well, people always avoid the target. Finally, we came to the idea of the guillotine. Knowing little about French history, I'm sure that this was not without problems, but at least if it worked, it was fast. You can just chop someone's head off and move on with things. It's visceral and efficient. What more could you ask for? To those hell-bent on retribution, the only option is to demand death, right? That's your setup. And then you move on to say, there's a poem I read recently that haunts me. It was written about the woman in the Gospel of John who was caught in adultery. There she is, standing in front of her accusers, waiting to be stoned to death. But Jesus comes in and drops the charges. It is the very portrait of mercy. It is what the world would look like if the internet took a breather, or if executions were brought to a screeching halt. This brilliance comes from poet Marie Howe. I'll read the poem. Teacher, they said to Jesus, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? She writes, John 8, 5. Here's the poem. You know how it is when your speeding car spins on the ice at night and you think, here it is. When the deer spring across the headlights, when you begin to slip down the steep and icy steps. Now imagine someone is about to punish you, someone you know, and then they don't. This is back to Sarah. The call for retributive violence is met with the mighty, mighty mercy of Jesus. Don't we all desperately need mercy? Mercy for the ones who demand vengeance. Mercy for the ones who are quick to turn in on themselves and hurt others. Mercy for the condemners trying desperately not to be the condemned. Mercy for us too. The family of Kenneth Smith's victim had long ago forgiven him. They certainly were not asking for him to die. And I'm sure they did not want him to be a test case for a new execution method. We are revenge vampires, though, aren't we? Most of us do not have to face issues around extreme violence and execution, but we face it every day in our encounters with all the other keyboard-wielding children of God. Killing Kenneth Smith did not make anyone feel better. It was not enough. Violence and anger never are. So, Sarah, I feel like your piece kind of sums up some of the things we've been talking about today, actually. Mm. The, um, re- to be a revenge vampire is to, the, to engage in this endless cycle of transgression and retribution. And you, you know, the original word I used there and I changed it was justice, justice vampire. But I changed it because people take that word to mean a lot of different things. But it, it is like, a self-justification, right? Or a demanding of justice when other people have done wrong so that we can avoid our own sins. Um, And, you know, just like vampires, like they never get enough blood, Hmm. you know? We've always, I mean, we all are like this, right? We all have to kind of keep doing it. Um, And the lack of willingness to assume the best just about people is, is always striking to me, you know, even as someone who often doesn't, it just, it's always striking to me to see it, you know, on a screen. Mm. And I had to write about Kenneth Smith. I mean, I, I just, I think executions are against God. Um, I mean, there's very few things I'll be so frank about, but that is one of them. And um, against the sanctity of life and, I have to be honest with you, Dave, when I heard him and I heard him say it, that he was, everyone had said to him, you know, this could go really south, you doing, you being executed in this new way. And he said he was terrified. Mm. It's like he's a little boy again Mm. to me. Like, it's like he's an eight year old. Like, I just, like, I, there was something about that as a mother and that, and Kenneth Smith is an old man, but there was something about that as a mother that I just like, just made me like lurch for, mm. you know, to want to like rescue him from that. Um, but I, I just, I worry so much for, for all of us because we live in a culture that just encourages so much violence on really large scales, but in really small ways too. You know, the fact of the matter is you and I can't do anything about the state's need to execute people. Um, But it does make me think more deeply about the day-to-day violence that, you know, (laughs) I kind of, 
step into um, and encourage in other people and um, all, all in a way to avoid my own self. Mm. So, mm. you know, I, I mean, I could go on about this. I, the last thing I'll say is I just, you know, nobody had probably faced their sins more than Kenneth, Kenneth Smith had, you know, I mean, anybody who sits on death row has faced themselves with no, no outside voices, right? No, I mean, it's just self-condemnation, which is why I think you see a lot of them become Christian. And Kenneth Smith, mm-hmm. in fact, had a a minister that was like um, there for him in a very real way, there for him and his death. And you, know, you see that a lot because I think when we are forced to sit with our own sins and our own condemnation for that long with no keyboard, right? We can't like shoot it off on somebody else. We don't have family around. We can project it onto, you know, all that's left in that cell is you and Jesus. Hmm. Um, and I, I just pray and had such a vision of Kenneth finally dying and just waking up in the arms of, of the Lord, just waking mm. up in his arms, you know? Um, mm. So, yeah, it really struck me in a big way. RJ, what, what, where do, what do you think about this? It's, it's not, it's not nearly as profound, but it, it just makes me think about how um, popular revenge movies are, uh, you know, Quentin yeah. Tarantino movies, yeah. John Wick. My son made me watch this awful Korean movie called Old Boy, which is uh-huh. like... Awful. A, 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 it's amazing, that movie. Dude, it's... it's. I never, ever want to see it ever it's again. It's vile, but it's all about revenge. It's, 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 it's all about revenge. It's 100%. Yeah. And it's like so vile, I don't mm-hmm. even want to talk about how vile it is on, mm-hmm. on the air. It's part of the a Vengeance trilogy, by the way. It's all... Well, I will not be watching the other two movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure my son has. <laughs> we stayed up late. He's like, watch this movie with me. I, we got there and I was like, well, I don't want to ever watch that again. And we joked about it for the next week. That's awesome. Um, I love I love Spencer. But um, those movies are satisfying in a way, but they also just like you got to take a shower when you're done, you yeah. know? And, and there's no, there's, there, I don't find them to be, to, to create any kind of ab reaction, you know? They're, they're not helping me work out anything. They're not leading me to a place of, uh, of greater wholeness or yeah. peace, you know? <laughs> Like, they're following his uh, formula so, in the same way Hallmark movies are following a formula. They're they're trying sure. to elicit a sort yes. of sense of completion, and right? Yes, but there is also something nice, and this is just me getting old and uncool. It's the same. Like I don't know if I'm gonna watch Killers of the Flower Moon. Like, do I really want to watch that? I'm not yeah. sure I do. Yeah. Like, I'd rather watch a movie that um, helps me, like, makes me, I feel better at Won't the end. Won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm turning into my mom, you know, who'd listen to, like, Christian rock. And we'd be like, Mom, why you listen to this terrible music? And she said, guys, it fills me up. Aww. And we're like, you're the least cool person we've ever met in our lives. And but she's like, I could I, give a shit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, all my friends actually thought she was really cool. They're like, your Aww. mom is so cool. I was like, no, she's not. Shut up. Um, but <laughs> That's amazing. I, I actually yeah. find myself sometimes craving watching a revenge movie. Like I need to I almost, really? I feel like I need to displace, Why? I need to just displace some of my anger onto like Nicolas Cage or, or uh, whoever it is all right. Fair um, enough. Fair and enough. watch them. Sort of, and Liam Neeson always, he's like the king of the January revenge movie. I like the John Wick movies. Those are pretty amazing. They're so beautiful. But, but Sarah, yeah. I mean, I, the, when, when you wrote this, I immediately thought not only of the endless arrow slinging and, uh, you know, the the extreme conflict in our society between red and blue that is about to heat up and just kill everything. And everything is about scoring yeah. points against the other side. Yeah. And like you just watch people saying, you watch the red people say something the blue said two years ago and the blue saying something the red people said two years ago. And you're like, yeah. you guys, do you remember any of this? Like it's all this game, you know, it's, or it's, a, it's, it's, yeah. it, I know there are stakes. I know it's serious, but it's, yeah. it feels to me like um, everyone's trying to score points. And yeah. uh, and it's very dark and discouraging, and a lot of it has to do with this kind of constant treadmill of uh, a circular exchange or uh, and revenge or vengeance. And so, to me, the great piece of art that arrived just in time—we talked about it at the very beginning. 
but the new season of Fargo. Now, if your people haven't watched Fargo, Ooh. you don't have to watch each season. They don't they don't build on each other. It's 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 sort of each season has its own characters, its own storyline, and it's all about kind of a crime in the Midwest. Healthy dose of it's it's harrowing, but a healthy dose of uh, humor and eccentricity going on. RJ, what are you about? To, what do you, what do you, are we going to spoil everything for anyone who hasn't watched this now? Or do you issue a spoiler alert at this point, Dave? What do we need to do? Spoiler alert. Okay. <laughs> okay. There we okay. go. Okay. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to spell out the specifics, but I will say you have an embodiment of basically the ancient curse of the law of of, yes. of, of, yes. of, of a, a price needing to be paid for yeah. every transgression. And if this person did this to you, well, then something they an eye for an eye. It, it is. It's. It's no. There's no. It's not uh, subtle. You know. It's clear. And um, you have at the end. You have the voice of someone who says that's that's not the only option. And mm. in fact, forgiveness is is possible. Mm. And the way that it happens, you need to watch till the very end. However, to me, it spoke so deeply of because uh, uh, because you watch the, what the show is it's an illustration of the escalation that always results when everyone loses everyone gets caught up in this stuff when you're trying to settle scores um, everyone's self-justifying and it, you take up arms against your oppressor and um, the one person who really really has been done unto you know is 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 the Juno Temple character she's truly been mm. horrifically victimized and yet yeah. somehow she's the she's the ray of hope because she sees that there is a there's something beyond deserving there's something yeah. and i would call it grace i would and i would call it god's grace and i think noah hawley did it uh, who's runs the show i think he did it gorgeous at, with every intention i think that this is this yeah. is nothing mistaken about this and it's and it's an inversion a lot of people would tell you of how the cohen brothers have ended movies before especially no country for old men so I know it's frustrating to write about something that involves hours of viewing, but um, this to me was uh, uh, something worth uh, holding up in uh, in light of the the revenge vampires that we all are, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, because the thing about the series was it is super physical and it's certain moments super violent, and yet because the ultimate goal of this victim of the protagonist is to just live her life right like she's not seeking revenge like she left she's just trying to live her life is so beautiful and then speaks forgiveness into it i just i mean it i know we don't want to talk about this minutia it's not really what we're talking about but i have to say the linda's the camp for women oh literally a summer camp for women who had been victims of domestic violence was one of the most beautiful things I've seen on television. The fact that at dinner they they would be assigned to cook their best casserole, <laughs> you know, the one they'd made for their family for years, and that their therapy was through puppets that they had to make themselves. Mm. It was staggering. I, I just blown away by the beauty of it. Just utterly blown away by the beauty of it's, it. It, so, it departs from the first four seasons of Fargo, which I've loved. I agree. But it, yeah. it, that's one of the reasons why it packs such a wallop in the end. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, let's, let's all burn our computers and stuff like that. And yet, yeah. how would I then get to watch things like Fargo or The right. Holdovers or The Saint of Second Chances or that do- Daughters documentary? I'm, I'm just, yeah. th- there's so many rays of light, but they're all rays of light in the in the dark, you know? Um, yeah that make it that much more uh, hopeful, I guess. RJ, you, you, I feel like you want to say something. I preached on uh, Fargo, or as part of my sermon this past week. It wasn't that moment. It was another moment earlier on in the— Tell us. Um, it was the moment when uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is talking to uh, John Hamm, and John Hamm you know, wants what he wants, and, and she says to him, um, so you want freedom without responsibility. Only one person on earth gets that deal. And John Hamm says, the president? And she goes, no, a, a baby. A mm. baby. You're fighting for your right to be a baby. a baby. So it was kind of, you know, it, it was a sermon about Christian freedom because it was Corinthians and eating meat sacrificed to idols. But the moment I loved most was my amazing director of music will often do this. If, if I make a, a 
a movie reference or TV reference, then when it comes time for the piece and he has to play a little music, you know, under the piece, he'll uh-huh. play something from the movie. So he played the um, the, the the Fargo theme song, right? That that beautiful. He oh did. Oh my god! And I said, and I, and I turned back and I said, I said, Mace, I said, that's the Fargo theme song. He said, actually, it's a Danish folk tune. I said, Mace, really? come on! Know, and guess what the name of the Danish folk tune is? What? The Lost Sheep. <gasps> As I live and breathe. Amazing. Did you guys didn't know I that, did right? Know that. No. The little, the like the vi- like the little violin yes. piece that plays through all of them. The one, yes. you know, it's the yeah, the lost sheep. Anyway, well, we've turned into a television podcast here for the last part of this, but I'm here. We for do it, it because it's it's worth it. I mean, I just I, yeah, it's it's, it's not ever that you can wholeheartedly say, hey. Law and grace, redemption, forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's where it's at. Theology Stop of the scrolling. cross. Turn on Here Fargo. it is. Like, this is, yeah. uh, I can't believe this just happened. Um, yeah. So, uh, anyway, the two of you, thank, I think that's a good place to end. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a core memory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.